There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was first light on Christmas Eve when Detective Eugene Gilligan entered Sophie's house. He was expecting a homicide scene, signs of a struggle, upturned furniture, broken glass, blood. Instead, the thing that struck him most was how normal everything seemed. Like the anthology of Irish poetry on the kitchen table, held open to a page with a pot of honey, as if someone might return at any moment to finish reading it. The whole house was sparsely furnished and white, white walls, white stone fireplace. Gilligan remembers the stairs. But the stairs were painted white glass paint. It made the house look French, he thought. They were spotless, and it told him Sophie was the type that didn't like shoes to be worn upstairs in the house. The deceased had slippers, and, and all her shoes were left at the bottom of the stairs. But we were the first ones with big boots on us walking up the stairs. And our footwear impressions were the only ones on it. Gilligan looked around the rooms upstairs. He went into the bathroom. She was in night clothing on the roadside, so we, we found her clothing that she had removed in the bathroom. We then went to the bedrooms. The bed we said at the time was an unusual bed because it was about a metre, a good metre, built up off the floor. He'd later learned that Sophie had a bed specially positioned like this. She liked to read and watch through the window the Fastnet Rock lighthouse light turning between the hills across the road from her. And we also found that um, she didn't use curtains on her windows. What Gilligan was wondering was, was Sophie being watched that night? As far as Gilligan could tell after surveying the house, there was no sign of anyone but Sophie. Her house was her house, and she had the inside decorated and, and, and left as she wanted it. And uh, that's what we found when we went in. This is West Cork, an Audible original series. I'm Sam Bungie. I'm Jennifer Ford, and this is episode three, Sophie Bunyol. The circumstances surrounding the murder of Madame de Plantier are quite mysterious as to why she should decide to spend Christmas alone in West Cork when she had a child and a husband in France. The killing has shocked the village of Skull in West Cork and where many foreigners keep holiday homes. Madame du Plantier had kept herself secluded from the local population on her visits and they didn't know a lot about her. She was blonde, very attractive girl, I thought. Very discreet and when little this happened... When you never take any notice of, of, of routine things, you know. But then, of course, when it crashed, everything she did was scrutinised. I think the first thing that came out was she was a glamorous French um, film director's wife. She came over with different men 
and um, she was having relationships with, um, if not all of them, at least one of them. She was very, um, a very gentle person. She wasn't forward. I would have said there was deep sadness somewhere. You know, and, yeah. So for whatever her reasons for coming to West Cork, I don't know. Sophie Toscanza Plantier was 39 years old. She was a television producer. She made art house documentaries for French TV. Her father was a dentist. Her mother was deputy mayor of a central district in Paris. They both still live in the apartment where they raised Sophie and her two brothers. Sophie was just over five feet tall, with blue eyes and a face covered with freckles. She had blonde hair that she wore simply, either loose by her shoulders or just pushed back off her face. Everyone who knew Sophie stresses that she didn't flaunt her beauty. At the time of her death, Sophie was married to Daniel Toscan de Plantier. He was one of France's most famous movie producers and was 16 years older than her. He'd worked with legendary European filmmakers like Fellini, Bergman and Truffaut. He'd been connected with a string of high-profile actresses like Isabella Rossellini. He was Sophie's second husband. Her first marriage only lasted a few years. She got married young and had a son, Pierre-Louis. Westcourt guards would learn all this in time. But on that first day, the local authorities weren't even sure of Sophie's full name. At first, everyone had it as Sophie Bugnol. The name Toscan de Plantier didn't come out until a day or two later. It turned out that Bugnol was Sophie's maiden name, but it's the name she used in West Cork, the name she listed herself as in the phone book. She'd bought the house in West Cork after her marriage to Daniel. In fact, he'd paid for it. And it wasn't as though she didn't take his name, she was Toscan de Plantier in Paris. So why was she using a different name in West Cork? Those early days of the investigation seemed to have been about piecing all this together, starting with what Sophie was doing there by herself so close to Christmas. Because it's a difficult area to have a quiet relationship. James Donovan, the head of forensics, says the guards were exploring whether Sophie had a local love interest, a difficult secret to keep in a place like West Cork. It would be quiet insofar as there wouldn't be too much traffic around, but it wouldn't be quiet insofar as people would notice. There's very little you can do, you could do privately. You think you're, you're private, and in fact you're, you're being watched like a hawk by everybody. Ian Bailey, the reporter who took us out to the crime scene, used his local contacts to peer into her love life. On different occasions she came over with different men. And she had, um, she was having relationships with, um, if not all of them, at least one of them. It appeared that she had had um, uh, some sort of open marriage. Ian wrote an article that appeared on the front page of an Irish tabloid, The Daily Star, under the headline, Sophie's Tangled Love Life. He described a beautiful and glamorous Frenchwoman with society connections and a hideaway love nest in West Cork. But it wasn't just Ian. We went through early coverage of the murder and found this was a common theme. The same newspaper also quoted a French journalist as saying, Sophie was like a man in relation to her love life. She would collect lovers. She would drop them. She got bored with them. It's as though the media were looking to all this to construct some cautionary tale around her demise. 
Headlines referred to Sophie as the separated mother, the divorced mother, the twice-married blonde. There was talk that clues had been found at the house, suggesting Sophie had had a visitor. Chairs pulled close together in the kitchen, two wine glasses left by the sink. There was also talk that not only did she know her killer, but she had entertained her killer, and the evidence, quote-unquote, for that was two wine glasses in a sink. Is that Were there two wine glasses in a sink? I won't go into the detail of what was found in the house because that is the subject of forensic tests and, and uh, the forensic examination. And there was This is Chief Superintendent Noel Smith trying to address some of the tabloid rumours in an RTE radio interview. There was a hint in, in another newspaper that she might have been in bed with somebody. We have no evidence to that effect. And there was also the, the suggestion that uh, this uh, unfortunate woman had a bevy of young men in, in her West Cork holiday home. There's no uh, all of those things to us were, as far as I'm concerned, not correct. And there are those in West Cork who remember instinctively feeling that this picture of Sophie in the press just didn't make sense. If this lady had been having wild orgies or parties or whatever it was, then uh, we'd have known. Somebody would have known and somebody would have told everybody. You know, that's, you know. I don't know, obviously, but I certainly have saw no evidence of it here anyway. What if her having an affair with uh, any kind? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go along with that at all. Thing is, none of these people could say much of anything conclusively about a woman they'd known only fleetingly, if at all. I'm Pierre-Louis Baudet. I'm 34 years old. Uh, I'm French. Pierre-Louis is Sophie's son. He was 15 when she died. Today he runs a property company with his dad. I have two kids. I'm married. He has two small children, a son named Louis and a daughter called Sophie. And uh, everything is okay. It sounds like over the years, they as a family have got better at dealing with the media, at blocking out all the rumours that were written about his mother. They invent, uh, they create my mother's uh, life. What sort of a person was she to you? Well, she was my mother and, well, uh, when she divorced, she was very poor and we used to to live in a very small flat in, in Paris. And she was not an artist, but she was uh, living for artists, an artistic uh, uh, manner. That's why she divorced with my father, who was a real pragmatic guy, a working guy. Pragmatic, like down to earth. In other words, nothing like her next husband, the flashy movie producer Daniel Toscan de Plantier. Pierre-Louis was nine when Sophie married Daniel. Daniel died of a heart attack at a film festival in 2003, so we never got to talk to him. But Lara Marlowe, the Irish Times Paris correspondent, met him a number of times after Sophie's murder. He told Lara about how Sophie was not easily won over. So he turned up outside her office one day on the Champs-Élysées. And he said, please, please, I really need to see you. I want to see you. And she said, well, um, you know, I, I don't go out with married men. And he was getting divorced. She said, write to my mother. If you can convince my mother I should see you, then I will. So Daniel sent copies of his divorce papers to Sophie's mother, Marguerite, who then responded saying, quote, you have a bad reputation, but my daughter is free to do as she likes. It's not quite the blessing you'd hope for from your future mother-in-law, but Daniel took it. 
Sophie's middle brother, Bertrand, said that when Sophie first told the family she was dating a celebrity, they wondered whether it would change things between them. But when Bertrand met Daniel, he liked him. He was a very interesting guy. When he uh, started to speak, you cannot stop him. Though he was certainly charming, Bertrand didn't quite see the attraction. Not physically. Well, that's my opinion. Not for me. You didn't have to marry him, though, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Safe. (laughs) It sounds like Daniel inhabited his own world. And while Sophie embraced it, the dinners, the public events, the movie premieres, that was only part of who Sophie was. My sister was quite different. Yes, she liked also glamour, but not all the time. She liked also to be alone or to be quiet and to be uh, just in her uh, her mind, uh, to write, work, to read. She liked solitude, and that was something she just didn't have in common with her husband. When Daniel spoke about Sophie, he said that she had an obsessive sense of mystery. She liked to have lots of secret gardens. Even after we married, I'm not sure I knew everything about her. The journalist Lara Marlowe talked about interviewing Daniel after the murder and noticing that he still had a photograph of Sophie up on his wall. It was a black and white photo that had been taken the summer before she was murdered sort of Alice in Wonderland, long blonde hair. And she seems to be reaching into a wall of ivy. And it was, in fact, the kitchen window at their holiday home. And she was handing a plate back into the kitchen or something. Daniel loved that photograph, and and I, I can understand why. There seems something unattainable about Sophie. There's a video on YouTube of her, filmed in Paris on her 28th birthday. It's a close-up of her face, shot on film by an artist friend of hers. She's on a rooftop. In the background, you can see the top of St Eustace Church, the church where Sophie was baptised and where her family held a small memorial service for her after her death. There's no sound, but you can see that it's a windy day. Sophie spends much of the time brushing her hair out of her face. When she looks at the camera, she's a little self-conscious, but happy, laughing and talking every now and then. But when she looks down or off to the side, she disappears from us completely. She's deep in thought and far away. Daniel said she had a, a sort of idealistic vision of love. She wanted real, total, absolute romantic love. And I think, therefore, she was always disappointed. You can never really know what happens in other people's relationships. And Sophie and Daniel's clearly wasn't perfect. There was Daniel's reputation for having mistresses And during a rocky patch in their relationship, Sophie had had an affair as well. He was a French artist named Bruno Carbonet. Sophie described him to friends as having a dark, intense personality, and he had visited her West Cork house. When Sophie broke off the affair, he was devastated. Friends of Sophie told police that Bruno started sending her weird stuff through the post, cut up pieces of his own paintings, a large screw, that he hid in the hallway of her apartment building waiting for her, then pushed her up against the wall so she couldn't breathe. And there were reports printed in the Daily Star that Bruno had tried to strangle her at a Paris metro station. 
onlookers had had to pry his hands from her throat. The French police confirmed his alibi. He had been to Ireland with Sophie. He'd been more than once, just not that weekend. Bruno said his affair with Sophie had lasted on and off for 18 months, until Christmas 1993. They tried to be discreet, but he was pretty sure that Daniel knew about it. He said Sophie didn't have a real relationship with Daniel, that it was almost a contract. Sophie was just required to turn up at events, like a marriage of convenience. But according to those closest to them, at the time of the murder, Sophie and Daniel were happy together. They were talking about having a baby. We know that one of Sophie's last telephone calls from Ireland was to the gardener at their country home in the south of France, arranging to have a tree planted outside their bedroom window as a Christmas present for Daniel. She'd spoken to him several times over that trip to West Cork, and they had plans to spend New Year's together in Africa with friends. Daniel was in their country home the night of the murder. The French consulate finally reached him there on the evening of December 23rd to tell him the news. But then he did something a lot of people would find strange. He stayed put. He didn't go to Ireland. As Sophie's parents and brother and aunt all boarded a flight to Cork on Christmas Eve, Daniel stayed behind in his country retreat. We asked Sophie's brother Bertrand about it. Some people in my family did not like or did not appreciate that the fact that it is, he was not coming it's exactly like danger. You don't know how you can react if you have never been confronted to that. I think that when he has received the information, he was totally out, I would say, out of order, like an elevator. It sounds like his family weren't too impressed, but it didn't make them question him at all. They never for a moment suspected that Daniel had anything to do with Sophie's murder. The guards knew he'd been in France that night. In West Cork, you'll hear rumours that Daniel may have somehow arranged her death. But no one close to Sophie or the investigation that we spoke to gives this theory any time. We looked into the other men that Sophie had supposedly been spotted with at her house in West Cork over the years. They turned out to be her brother, her uncle, her husband, her father, a work colleague. So what was Sophie doing in West Cork, alone, just days before Christmas? In 1992, Sophie began looking for a place to get away. She remembered the foreign exchanges that she and her brother Bertrand had done in Dublin as teenagers. She ended up touring the west of Ireland looking for the perfect spot, and she kept a diary as she went. She wrote, Could I bear the solitude of a country like Ireland? I would like to live in the wild. I would like to write there, in this noisy, windy tranquility, go there out of season, settle in for the autumn and winter. They speak of the weather with great interest and concentration, constantly assuring you that the weather of the day is unusual. I have to admit that it's very cold here at the moment. I like this country. I'm adapting to it at the same time that my body is more or less getting used to the cold. I'm growing physically tougher, and I feel at ease here with these people, their language and their reflections. Ireland, 
the sky and the sea and the earth, nothing else as far as the eye can see. Furrows in the ground where they have dug out and collected the peat. Autumn, where everything is red and green like the hair in the eyes of the Irish. Any description seems superficial compared to the reality of Ireland. Sophie narrowed it down to two places in two very different landscapes, a more tranquil part of Connemara and the wilder West Cork. In her diary, she wrote, what is my preference? It is difficult to choose between gentleness and violence. In the end, she chose West Cork, enchanted by a white farmhouse that looked out to the Atlantic, and on a clear day, the lighthouse perched on a perilous fastnet rock. Daniel bought Sophie the house here, but he only visited once. Unlike their fancy apartment in an expensive part of Paris and Daniel's chateau in the countryside, Sophie's house in West Cork was sparsely decorated and filled with books. It was really like, uh, like a peace place. Sophie's best friend, Agne Thomas, visited West Cork with Sophie. Place to, re to relax and be quiet. She was really loving that place. And for her, it was really the place to relax and to be okay with herself. Agne says it was too windy to sit outside, it was freezing cold, and it seemed like there was always something leaking in the house. It wasn't everyone's idea of a perfect getaway. But Bertrand says this is exactly what Sophie was looking for. I think that he wanted a place, a wild place, with very few people that was empty, very few things, you know. Uh, in her bedroom, it was just the bed and that's all. Uh, very few things on the, on the wall, uh, very few things in the, in the, in the cook, you know, the cooker, cooking, cook, la, la, the place. Is a cook? No. The kitchen. The kitchen. I'm sorry, the kitchen. <laughs> it was exactly how you can imagine, Sophie. It was uh, exactly that. So uh, we find her when we enter in the house. Maybe in this context, it makes sense that Sophie used her maiden name in West Cork. In Ireland, she didn't want to be Toscan de Plantier, wife of a celebrity. She wanted to escape all that, to reclaim who she was before she met Daniel, her simple life with Pierre-Louis. The guard spoke to several passengers on her flight. They remembered that she was on her own. The lady who sat next to her in business class said she didn't talk to her, that Sophie had seemed quiet, reserved, but not anxious. CCTV footage from Cork Airport shows Sophie walking through arrivals on her own, pushing her trolley on the way to the rental car desk. Guards trawled passenger lists of flights and ferries from France, but found no one of interest. We found out that Sophie had, in fact, asked several people to go with her to Ireland that weekend, but everyone she asked turned her down. Daniel had work, her friend couldn't get away. Her aunt, Marie Madeleine, was out with the flu. Her brother Bertrand and his wife just had a baby. Daniel would later say that those who didn't go were suffering immensely for it, 
they'd have to wonder, what if? But no one thought it was strange or suspicious that Sophie went on alone. She'd never been to West Cork by herself before, but she wanted to take a few days off, and there were some things around the house that needed fixing. Sophie left Paris for Cork on Friday. The following Monday evening, Sophie's mother, Marguerite Bognol, was watching the news. There was a report that the body of a French woman had been discovered in County Cork. Le corps d'une jeune Française d'une trentaine d'années a été découvert aujourd'hui dans le comté de Cork. La victime à demi dévêtue, portant des blessures à la tête, était venue passer quelques jours de vacances dans une petite maison isolée. Une autopsie... The reporter said the victim was half-clothed and suffered head injuries. She'd been spending a few days on holiday in an isolated cottage. There were no more details, no town, no description of the victim. But somehow Marguerite knew it was her daughter. She called her sister, Marie Madeleine, and told her that a woman had been killed in Cork. Immediately I said, but Cork region is so, so large, so big, a woman. But she's French, but a French woman, you have some in Ireland. And after she called me, but it's not Cork, it's Skull. Skull, the nearest town to Sophie. Bertrand tried to reach her in West Cork. He tried every number he had. I tried to call my sister, and it couldn't have her. And I tried to call uh, Josephine. He's talking about Josephine Helen, Sophie's caretaker. He says she didn't want to be the one to tell the family. So Bertrand put it simply, is my sister alive? She said no. Then someone had to tell Pierre-Louis. He was spending Christmas with his father. I was in my grandparents' countryside uh, house, and uh, it was in the night, and, uh, and my father... Uh, came to, to see me, and, uh, well, uh, and the rest is too intimistic, well, you know, it, it's too, in, in two seconds, all your life changed. The next day, Christmas Eve, Sophie's parents, aunt and brother Bertrand caught the last flight to Cork. The guards were there too. Our first uh, goal was to go in Sophie's house. I want to sleep in my, my sister's house. The guards told them the house was a crime scene, but Bertrand still wanted to go in. Perhaps we can see things that are different than things that were before, and perhaps it can help some, someone. Instead, the family were taken to a hotel. They were put in separate rooms and, without an interpreter, hammered with questions about Sophie. Where she came alone, uh, what were her relationship with her husband? Did she have some, uh, some enemies? What was the relationship with her first husband? Uh, and, and everything like that. The police knew that she was the wife of Daniel Kutoskone-Portubes, but they didn't know nothing about her. Then the guards told them to stay put, and they left. Sophie's family weren't allowed to go to West Cork but nor were they allowed to see Sophie's body, which was now in the morgue at Cork University Hospital, just a few miles from them. As they set about trying to find somewhere to get some food on Christmas Eve in Cork City, the post-mortem was well underway. Dr John Harbison, the pathologist, had finally arrived at the crime scene on Christmas Eve, 26 hours after Sophie's body was found, and who knew how much longer it had lain there before that. As for a time of death, Harbison could now only make an educated guess. The body temperature had long since leveled off to its surroundings. 
he found no indication of sexual assault or of any recent sexual activity. He noted almost 50 wounds on the body. There were lacerations on the back of Sophie's hands and to the back of her head, and her skull was fractured. Harbison declared this the cause of death. He thought the slate and the concrete block found by the body were both likely weapons. But the injuries told him there must have been a third weapon, something that was missing from the scene. Christmas Day came and went, and the following day, the guards called for Bertrand. So I went alone with police uh, uh, to recognize my sister's body. Uh, it's not very uneasy, uneasy, uh, uh, an easy thing to do, uh, especially because uh, she has been hurt at, at the face, and the face has been remodeled by the coroner. So it was very difficult to recognize her. In fact, it looked so unlike his sister that Bertrand didn't feel comfortable formally identifying her. Uh, and so uh, they asked me if, um, if my parents could come and I bring my parents and my, and my aunt uh, to uh, once again to uh, visit my sister's body. And uh, it's been uh, about 15 minutes and uh, after we go back. So it was a very strange, very strange uh, day. By the end of the week, Sophie's body would be released to the family and Daniel would hold a large celebrity-filled funeral back in France. Her family would hate it and think it didn't reflect Sophie at all. A few days later, they would hold another simple and private ceremony in the Paris chapel where Sophie was baptised. At the funeral arranged by Daniel, the family were asked by the guards to be on the lookout for anyone suspicious, anyone with fresh cuts or scratches but it seems that the guards were beginning to think that Sophie's killer hadn't come from France. On the night she died, the last person Sophie spoke to was her husband, Daniel. She called him at about 10.30pm. He was busy with work, but he called her back half an hour later. Sophie didn't mention that she'd had anyone over in the house or that she was expecting anyone. We asked Sophie's family about the two wine glasses on the draining board and the chairs pulled close together. Did it mean that someone else had been in the house with Sophie? They didn't think so. Sophie probably used both glasses herself and just hadn't put them away. And with the chairs, that's just how Sophie liked to read, sitting on one, feet up on the other. The book of poetry on the kitchen table told them that's exactly what she'd been doing. The guards found a plastic bag from the supermarket in Skull and checked her receipts with the owner for what she'd purchased. They concluded it didn't look like Sophie was cooking for a guest. Daniel told the guards that when he called Sophie back that night, they spoke about her day and she sounded in good spirits. Daniel says she'd been teasing him about not getting back in time for Christmas, but on the call she told him she'd managed to get a flight back for Christmas Eve, so Daniel said he'd meet her at the airport. He said she sounded tired that night and was already in bed. If she had heard a noise outside after they hung up, Daniel says she was the type who would slip on her boots and go outside to investigate. Years later, Sophie's mother came across a passage in one of Sophie's journals. She talked to the journalist Lara Marlowe about it. It was about something Sophie had seen out walking one day in West Cork. She described a fox stalking sheep in Ireland. Let me see if I can find it. Um, here it is. The most haunting image is of a fox stalking the lambs. 
I'm quoting Sophie, this animal that pulls me unwittingly into his clandestinity, forcing me, but also you, to remain silent, to become his companion in hunting. Later, she finds a dead sheep by the path, open quote, a devoured cadaver with his skeleton and skin spread out a little further away, raw wool, white and animal, dirty and smelling, in fact, the whole scalp of a body, an empty envelope mixed with dirt and blood. You die in the wind, in the sea, on the land here. The rottenness is spread out in daylight, perfectly natural. I'm not a believing person. I'm not really superstitious. As a journalist, I, I kind of stick to facts. But uh, sometimes when you come across these sorts of coincidences, you wonder... Daniel didn't speak publicly about the murder for more than a year afterwards. He said it was out of decency and modesty, and because he knew Sophie would have hated it. When he finally gave an interview to the French newspaper Le Figaro, he said he hoped that Sophie would forgive him for speaking. He talked about how difficult it had been to see the news coverage and gossip and suspicion around him in the immediate aftermath, and how his friends and family banned him from watching the news or reading the newspaper. The only thing he was allowed to watch was the weather. Daniel talked about losing Sophie as an incurable wound. He said what he was struggling to deal with was it wasn't like a car accident. It wasn't fate. With Sophie's murder, there had been a will behind it. There was someone on earth who did it. He said there was a devil somewhere in the hills of Southern Ireland. West Cork is an Audible original production, written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced and sound designed by Kristen Muller, Alex Trajano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moho. West Cork is edited by Mike Olov. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.